From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Primo raises 50 million US dollars in Series B funding. Klarna offers pay now option ahead of the FCA review. And facial recognition cameras arrive in UK schools. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something else we've been cooking up here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is a world leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks deliver outstanding banking experiences to more than 1.2 billion people. Scale 2021 is Temenos' dedicated, free-to-attend virtual developer event. It includes customer presentations, product demos, roadmap sessions, as well as opportunities for you to speak with Temenos experts. You'll also hear insights from industry leaders on current technology trends and how they impact banking today. Whether you're a developer, consultant, or business user, discover the latest in banking technology with Temenos software. Search Temenos Scale 2021 to find out more. The evolution of financial services has opened up a whole new world of possibilities for banks. But to harness those opportunities, they need to break free from traditional constraints. Our new report, in association with Infosys Finical, explores how banks can overcome these challenges to see the full benefits of a truly digital world. Find the report at bit.ly forward slash banking business models. Welcome to episode 574 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer and I'm joined for the very first time by my 11FS colleague, Product Director, Lindsay Kistler. How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm doing okay. Yeah, excited to be here. You're feeling excited about this slightly trepidatious or are you like, yeah, let's do this? A bit of both. Um, Yeah, no, super exciting stories this week. Uh, Looking forward to it. Very good. Well, I mean, you were saying just before the show, I mean, you're joined not just by your colleagues, but uh, but by your dog in the background. So there might be a kind of a guest special for everybody listening to this one at some point during this. So if you if you do hear a dog, reach out and we'll send you a free T-shirt. But well, I'm fine with that. The first one, though, like if you do it. So uh, but uh, so your dog's got some pressure now, Lindsay. I'll have to try to provoke some barks. Sometime. Definitely. Awesome. All right. As always, we're joined by some super duper special guests. Uh, making a return to FinTech Insider, we're delighted to welcome back Gabriel Leroux, who is the co-founder of Primer. Gabriel, uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pretty exciting week for you guys that we'll sort of come to in a little while. But for everybody who doesn't know, give us the elevator pitch. What does what does Primer do? Absolutely. It's, it's good to be back on the show, uh, David. So what is Primer? We are essentially the world first automation uh, platform for payments. So essentially what we're providing is uh, a unified checkout and payment integration. And we enable merchants to expand their payment stack with any payment services and APIs they want from across the web. So we're very similar to Zapier for web application. So as soon as you have um, you know, Primer integrated, essentially what you can do as a merchant is build a dynamic end-to-end payment flow without touching a single line of code. So just, just a bit more points on Primer. Uh, our vision is to make payments a first-class product area. Uh, we want anyone at a company to essentially have the ability to use payment as a way to drive growth. Uh, what's interesting with, with us as, as a company is we're an infrastructure product, so we don't have to be financially regulated. So yes, we're like, you know, sometimes we have the FinTech stamp and the payment stamp, but we're like, you know, an infrastructure tool, right? Uh, and that means that, you know, we are essentially global from day one. So we have now a team in the EU, of, of course, like across the EU. We, we are remote first. We have essentially teams like in, across 20 countries. 
but we are now like live uh, with clients in the EU, UK, APAC, and in the US. And we're now like 75. And obviously, we're going to you know grow the team uh, in 2022. Fantastic. So that's the... Uh, the story, the short story about Primer. Well, we'll get onto the long story very shortly in terms of uh, what you guys exactly. have been up to and where you're going next. But uh, yeah, super good to have you back on the show. Uh, and making uh, their FinTech Insider debut today, we have Richard Jones, who is the Director and Chief Product Officer over at GoHenry. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'll get onto your news a little bit later on today as, as well. For the listeners listening to this, uh, Richard, give us a bit of an overview of, of uh, GoHenry. I mean, other than the fact that both of my kids are massive fans of yours, then uh, I think uh, it'd be good to give you the, the spiel. Oh, that's good to hear, David, and thanks very much for inviting me onto the show. So GoHenry is a debit card and financial education app for kids and teens between 6 and 18. We see kids and teens as an underbanked segment. They're not well served by traditional providers. And with the world going cashless, kids and teens, they need a safe solution. On starting GoHenry back in 2012, we effectively created a new category and we're still the market leaders today. So when we started the business, people thought, why would you give a debit card to kids? But we felt that the world was going in this direction and that over the coming years, every kid would need a debit card to go about their daily lives, whether it's getting the bus to school or buying meals at school. And we've proven to be right there. And it's difficult now for a, a child to exist with their online world and with the cashless world without a, a safe debit card solution. The mission of the business is to make every kid smart with money. And we've recently launched, or very recently launched, a new feature called Money Missions, which we'll be touching on a little bit later today. And that's a very significant step for us on that journey. So I look forward to discussing it with you amongst other things. Very cool. Well, I've, again, I've got so many questions on that that we'll come to as we uh, as we get to it. But we really probably should get on with the news at this stage. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, the first story, I mean, we foreshadowed this one a little bit, but TechCrunch covered it and a bunch of other places as well. Primer raises 50 million US dollars at a four to five million valuation. So Primer, a UK startup that has built a drag and drop framework to help merchants easily build payment stacks to sell online, has raised 50 million US dollars in a Series B funding. The round was led by Iconic, the growth stage arm of the San Francisco wealth management and investment firm connected to Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey. Dang, there's some like Avengers on that one, isn't there? Uh, as well as other existing investors. Primer has seen rapid take up uh, in its services in the 20 months since it launched and now works across 20 countries. It is also more than 45 integrations in its merchant users, and they can add them very, very easily into those payment flows. I mean, Gabriel, we really should sort of come to you first on this one uh, rather than talk about you. You know, congratulations. That's a big valuation. But actually, I mean, that's a, a chunk of cash to kind of get into the business. To, to really support that growth and capitalize, I guess, on the, the momentum that you guys have really sort of built up today. So what, what's the, you've got $50 million burning a hole in your pocket. What are you, what are you going to be doing with it? <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think, you know, for us is, is we're going to continue with uh, the, the growth um, when it comes to, you know, expanding into new market, growing the GTM team, the sales team, and, you know, all product uh, organizations that we have internally at Primer. So as I said earlier, we are a global company from day one. Uh, we have now a sales team in the US. We have a sales team in Singapore. We have a sales team sitting in Europe and in the UK. And with that funding, we're going to continue that effort to essentially uh, expand Primer globally. Fantastic. I mean, uh, as I sort of went through with the investment firm, I mean, damn, there's some big boys and girls on the, uh, on the, the sort of the other side of the table on that one. I mean, that must be 
quite an amazing opportunity given sort of tapping in not only from a funding perspective, but the, the experiences in and around the room as well. Absolutely. Uh, it's fantastic to, uh, to have a partner like, uh, like Iconic. They have like deep tech expertise. And as you said yourself, David, an amazing network, right? And, but also like a very good understanding of our product and vision, which is very crucial for us um, as founders and, and for the whole company. Uh, but what's interesting with the Iconic is that they also invested in a lot of amazing product and services. Uh, they are investor in Datadog, uh, Fivetran in the data sector, but also like, you know, a uh, large e-commerce player like Airbnb. And all of these like product and services are either things that we're using ourselves as a company, future clients potentially, but also connections that we're going to have on the platform. So it was, it was, uh, you know, a, 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 it's a great choice for us. It's and it's there is like natural synergies with with, with iconic. Yeah, it's nice to. Um, I mean, often from an investment perspective, you can get money, but it's beyond money, isn't it? In this instance, it's it sort of takes it into another level in terms of the credibility that they really bring to the table. But I mean, you touched on it a little bit earlier on with the, uh, and actually, I, I sort of referenced the sort of drag and drop framework. But you know, the the sort of workflows that sits behind this, you know, the intelligence that that brings and the, the sophistication that that really sort of brings to the, the fingertips of, of your customers. I mean, ha- is that really the, the secret sauce here in terms of the, the things that you do kind of over and above the competitors that sit in this space? I think, you know, so there's a couple of things here which, which are quite unique to Primer. We're defining a, a complete new category, right? Like payment automation is brand new. Right. And one thing to note as, as well here, which is, which is quite crucial, is that we have very unique expertise uh, with MicroFounder. We were at Brentry and PayPal before. You know, we, I was there for about five years working in sales, partnership, product. And we were essentially helping some of the largest merchants of, of Brentry and PayPal across the globe. And the one thing that we realized is that there is no platform out there that has built the underlying infrastructure for payments. Right. Yes, you can add like all these amazing services, but there's no, under, you know, no infrastructure that underpins all that, right? And that's essentially one thing that you know, we're solving with Primer. So the, the one notion that is very crucial as well to, to, to bear in mind is that, and I think we, we, we're going to discuss that at some point like later on, is payment is only going one way. You have only have more services that you want to integrate as part of your payment stack, right? And the fact that you know payment is growing means that you know merchants have a payments roadmap, and that roadmap roadmap is is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They want to integrate local pay method. They want to create KYC platform. They want to do loyalty and rewards at the point of checkout. They want to use chargeback management system. But you know, uh, typically there's no one that can turn that roadmap into reality, right? And that's essentially what we are doing here. Our goal is to become the biggest enabler for for e-commerce. Help the merchant, you know, use payment as a way uh, to accelerate their strategy and growth, but also help like all these amazing services to get faster activation, right? Primer is completely open. Uh, anyone can be on Primer, any services, which will essentially like, you know, means that we're going to see amazing buying experiences being created on our platform. So I guess, you know, when you're creating a category, like we'll have people like, you know, copying Primer, but as of now, like we are, you know, the pioneer and we'll, um, you know, that's, that's the... The answer to your to your question, David. Sure. Now, I mean, Lindsay. I mean, we talk about this a lot at Eleven FS in terms of the. I mean, the underlying fabric of financial services is 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 fundamentally shifting, and actually, payments create such a a large part of that when it comes to it. Obviously, there's a a huge other elements of that stack that sort of comes in there. But I mean, with where we're seeing investment over the last 
you know, six, 12 months really going. And actually with further and further people sort of investing lower down in that stack. I mean, we've often sort of talked on this show about the, you know, the the, the B2B space becoming sexier and sexier when it comes to the, the opportunities that it brings to customers. But do you think this is just a, the way that things are kind of going, that, that fabric being changed over the next five years or so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is probably just the tip of the iceberg. You know, e-commerce, e-commerce is like all, like all direct to consumer sales, a business that lives in the margins, you know, it lives in the, in the second or the tenths of the percent or all those things. And, you know, companies have invested enormously in making beautiful shopping experiences. You know, they're making huge investments in having, having every, every part of that journey be as beautiful and as slick as possible. And then in so many of those experiences, you get to the payment bit and you just fall off a cliff. And it's just like, whoa, what happened to this beautiful shopping experience I was having? Suddenly I'm like, you know, going to another page and it's loading and I've got a spinner and it's verified by Visa and I got a thing and, you know, not to over egg it, but, you know, it's terrible. And it it feels like it's just this inevitable thing that payments had to catch up because you can't have premium shopping experiences like way up here and then payment experiences that are like way down here. Yeah, it is a um, it is a definite problem, isn't it? The drop off there costs businesses millions and millions of pounds, doesn't it? In terms of that uh, that sort of shift, but I mean, it is interesting. I think, like you say, we've we've seen. I mean, fintech started in payments, but we're kind of going full circle a little bit, right? In terms of actually where we're sort of seeing more and more things happening in the payment space, whether it's in value chains around metadata around the payments, or whether it's the the underlying payments infrastructure itself. But Gabe, I can see this one being. Uh, this isn't going to be the, the the last time you guys are hitting the headlines when it comes to the the features or the capability or even a raise. But and with your aspirations, I. I guess, uh, you know, you've started globally, but the more you operate globally as well in terms of opportunities, then the more infrastructure you're going to have to put globally as well, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, the uh, the challenge that we're solving is is a global challenge by nature, right? You're not going to talk to anyone out there who's going to tell you, hey, I'm done with payments, right? It's, you know, always like something that will need to be improved, refined. If you launch into a new market, you actually have to add, you know, you have to have the, the relevant payment method. If you're targeting a new type of customers, you might actually like need to define a new fraud strategy. But sometimes it's actually even like beyond what you want to do as a, as a merchant. Sometimes you have macro changes, which are forcing you to rethink your payments. And well, a good example is SCA and PSD2, right? And so all these things are, you know, are obviously like, you know, creating a lot of challenges for, for, for a merchant out there. And what they want to do is make sure that they have the most beautiful checkout. But as you said, Lindsay, sometimes you have a beautiful flow. And when you arrive at the point of checkout, it's a complete nightmare. I mean, to... To that point, though, Gabe, I mean, we've had somebody like Patrick Collinson on the on the podcast before talking about, you know, the impact that SCA has and the uh, the negative, co- you know, cost of that to, to, to people within that value chain. I mean, do you think with things like, um, you know, the increased costs around it, I mean, arguably any industry where you see increased sort of commoditization at the bottom of the, the stack, whether it's, you know, in this instance, payments or, or whatever, whatever it is, do you think we're sort of seeing two plays kind of breaking out there, which is, you know, commoditization leads sort of unit costs getting really, really squeezed at the bottom level, or it's how do you push higher and higher up in the stack continually to to create, you know, really value-adding services in the way that 
you know, I see you guys really pushing up to. You're you're pushing higher up in the stack, but equally you can see people pushing further and further into that, you know, cheapest chips, low cost kind of vibe. You know, like do you see there being a, a bit of a bifurcation in terms of those plays? Well, I think I think, you know, I don't think the the highest priority for customers to actually find the cheapest provider for their payments. I think what they want to have is the best possible user experience and maximum success at the point of checkout, right? And and the way to do that today is by actually using a multitude of services across your payment stack, is by using services which are like solving a unique challenge and problem, right? And that's why you have like, you know, lots of different services being launched every single week. You have four provider, you have open banking, obviously, you have a loyalty and rewards platform, KYC engine, and you also have things that now want to be, or services that now can be consumed as part of a payment. One thing that we're doing at Primer and one thing that we understand is that payment is more than just a transaction. It's a multitude of services you want to use you know, as part of a payment, as part of a checkout experience. And, and so that's essentially what we're facilitating. One thing that is very interesting is when you look at some you know, industries, they're now looking at payments as a way to create loyalty with our customer or like to create unique buying experiences. We see that ourselves with the on-demand industry, for example, or in micromobility and mobility. Well, guess what? Like, you know, the, the, the payment part is a very crucial part of the onboarding step, but it's also a way for them to be closer to their customer, create some stickiness, right? And they're going to do that with loyalty and rewards or with, you know, monthly passes. We've seen, you know, the... Uh, the delivery uh, feature where you can actually now have like a monthly pass if you don't want to pay the delivery fee. Well, that's, a, you know, a way to use payment to engage with your customer and create stickiness. So this is this is what we see and this is what we know merchant want to do. Definitely. And it makes it makes a great deal of sense. It aligns very much to the way in which we see the world uh, evolving. And I kind of think uh, this is won't be the last time we get you on the show to talk about it. So we'll uh, we'll kind of come back to it in the future. But uh, we better move on because there was a lot of other things that were going on. So the next story that we we saw uh, was actually covered in a lot of places. But but the one that stood out to us was BBC News. Klarna to offer pay now option ahead of the FCA review. Uh, buy now, pay later firm Klarna is planning planning changes ahead of an expected treasury crackdown on the UK market. Uh, this includes a pay now option to let people pay for items in full immediately. Uh, Klarna said the pay now option and other changes it was making would give customers much more clarity and much more control. Klarna also clarified the language in its terms and conditions as well as at the checkout to inform customers that buy now pay now solutions are credit products and that there are risks uh, involved in late payments. In February the government announced that buy now pay later products would be regulated by the FCA uh, and the treasury consultation on the sector is expected before the financial watchdog sets out the rules and regulation later on this year. Uh, I mean, it's really, really interesting, isn't it? This is a, a an interesting impact. And actually, it's interesting that Klarna are kind of getting out ahead of this to, to get going. I mean, Richard, keen to kind of come and come to you first on this one. I mean, how big is the buy now pay later sense right now in terms of everything that's happening? I mean, is this something Go Henry's looking at? Well, obviously, we we serve sort of kids and teens, and buy now, pay later as a service to them wouldn't be wouldn't be appropriate because it's credit, and obviously, credit for under 18s is not something that is either allowed or, or should be allowed. But it is something that kids and teens need to learn about. Typically, at the moment, when kids leave school, they haven't learned about debt, credit, mortgages, credit cards, or anything. And buy now, pay later is just something else that falls into that into that product set or genre. So we feel it's very important that we start to teach kids, especially teens, about these types of products. And those are the sorts of things that we, we are covering in our 
sort of money missions, financial learning side of the app. So something we're very aware of, very on top of, but obviously not something that we would be looking to offer as a direct service to to our kids and teens. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The the overlap between, uh, I mean, at that level, and and we'll sort of come to come to your news a little bit later. But the overlap between sort of kids' finances and and the parents' finances, you know, there is a world where uh, the kid makes a request, and actually the the ability to authorize that request will actually buy now pay later could fall into that when it comes to the adult finances to a certain degree i'm thinking my kids are my kids are ridiculous for using uh, apple's uh, parental controls framework to basically pester me on my apple watch to download things or just getting extra screen time so you could easily see almost it's chain payments again gabe you know actually you could easily see that falling within the hey how do you want to do you want to pay and if you do want to pay how do you want to pay and that that's sitting at the adult level rather than at the kid level i think we've just done a product feature idea there richard just by the just uh let's call this a workshop uh we'll send you the bill later there you go. but yeah. um <laughs> we'll put it on the list but it's um it's interesting isn't it i mean what do we think uh, on this Lindsay? in terms of i mean Klarna, is this them sort of getting out ahead of the changes that they're seeing because i mean they've caught quite a lot of flack lately for you know the the regulation the setup and you know everything that's really happening is is this just a smart smart move from their perspective it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, it, it, you could look at it one way and it looks it looks pretty cynical. You know, it's like, let's let's do this before we have to and, you know, get some good press out of it at the same time. But I guess on the other hand, I think there is a thing about positioning buy now, pay later as as an option. And seeing it at the checkout next to pay now is actually a very subtle repositioning, which could perhaps you could make an argument that that's really helping consumers make an, a more informed choice. Um, you know, the, almost the juxtaposition of paying now versus paying later, it sort of brings it into focus. And I, you know, I, I'm aware of some research with the brand, especially with Klarna, as well as some of the other providers in this space that some consumers don't always realize that that buy now pay later is a credit product and um and and almost like having them having them stacked up against each other at that checkout moment could potentially help that which is indirectly helping the financial education around it in general because i think there are there are some dark patterns and some kind of like murky practices um going on in that space right now and unfortunately often targeting younger shoppers which is where it gets even darker. So, yeah, hopefully it's a it's a move in the right direction. Yeah, it's um you know clearing it up, making sure people are knowing really what they're buying. I mean that that can't harm the market, can it? But you know if the lowest bar is the regulator in terms of actually what happens, that's not a good place to be. But actually seeing an organisation getting out ahead of it and trying to you know do good before they're told what is good and what is bad is is probably a pretty good place to be as well. So. Uh, all right. On that note, I think we'll probably leave that one because uh, because I, I think we could probably go backwards and forwards about the the pros and cons of uh, and the uh, uh, efficacies of uh, buy now pay later. But I'm pretty sure we've already done that on an after dark before. So if you want to go listen to that, go figure out what episode it is. On that note, what we're going to do, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and we'll be back with you very shortly. Hey folks, I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. I'll be speaking at SASA's Innovation Summit on the 9th of November, where I'll be delivering an exclusive keynote on how banking can unlock innovation in the banking battlefield. The Innovation Summit is your opportunity to be inspired, raise questions, and discuss solutions with select banking industry peers and experts on the most pressing issues for you as a leader 
and decision maker in the industry. This is an exclusive live event aimed at senior executives. The format is intimate and you won't be able to catch this one on demand. So for your chance to address your strategic challenges, unlock the future of your business and make connections, join me at the Innovation Summit hosted by SAS. See you there. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit letsdeal forward slash 11FS. That's letsdeal, D-E-E-L, dot com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. All right. uh, Welcome back to the news. So the next story that we had, again, was covered in a lot of different places, but the one that we picked up was AltFi, uh, was GoHenry launches new in-app gamified education for financial literacy. So GoHenry, the fintech dedicated to kids' debit cards, money management, and financial education, has this week launched Money Missions. You might have heard of it in the first part of the show. Money Missions is a gamified interaction tool designed to educate children aged 6 to 18 and promote better financial literacy. The games cover a full curriculum, including money basics, earning, savings, investing, responsible spending, credit, money safety, and much, much more. Kids watch animated videos, take quizzes, earn points. I am signing my children up for this tomorrow, like immediately. Like it's a half term is going to take on a completely different uh, curriculum now that I know I can do this with them next week. So, uh, Richard, I'm going to come to you on this one. Super good stuff. These, these are the things that me and my wife talk about a lot when we're trying to figure out how we get our kids to understand the value of money and understand how money works. So, I mean, what drove the decision to kind of move into this side? Well, exactly that, really. We, we've done a lot of research of our customer base, both in the UK and the US, over the last uh, number of years. And the number one ask is to help teach their kids about money. And they tell us that GoHenry already does that by the fact it's a debit card with an app and there are savings features and little budgeting features, etc., that the kids can use. And the parents tell us their kids learn, even by running out of money and bumping up against parental you know, spend controls, the kids learn very quickly and their money behaviours change. But we felt that we needed to do something that was more overtly and sort of proactively educational around money. And this ties very much into a kind of a, a move that is in place both in the US and the UK to try to get more financial education, financial literacy into the school's curriculum. And we felt that you know, we could help our customers with that. So that really is, is the reason that we decided to you know, implement this money missions solution within, within GoHenry. Uh, and the way that we did it, we, we've gamified the solution. It was actually inspired by some of the, the apps that are already out there, such as Duolingo and Headspace, etc., that are beautifully produced and gamified to a certain extent to try and make otherwise potentially dry subjects a little bit more interesting. So that's the approach we've taken. Um, we put a huge amount of internal sort of design effort and 
time into it. And we're, you know, we're very pleased with where it's got to. We've had a lot of fantastic feedback through the process and through a, a, a recent beta that we ran with 30,000 uh, customers. So, you know, we're very excited about it and, and so are our customers. But it's just the start of a journey for us, actually, because the initial version covers the UK and US national sort of financial literacy guidelines or curriculums for seven to 11 year olds. But we're moving on to sort of 10, 11 to 14 year olds and then 14 plus. And the 14 plus program is an adult program on financial literacy, actually. It goes into, into great depth across many subjects. So that's the direction we're, we're taking our product. Uh, and it's, um, it's, as I say, it's something in response to, to direct requests and in, indirect requests from our customers. The parents can join in the experience too, so the parents can, can experience all the missions, they can see how their children are progressing, what their sort of the progress is, how many lessons they've done. So we, one of the objectives behind it is to try and encourage further conversations between parents and children around money and actually also help the parent and coach the parent on how they can help their child learn about money concepts. Uh, there's no doubt that you know the evidence from research around the world and Cambridge University in particular shows that kids' money habits start as early as seven years old, believe it or not, heavily influenced by their parents, and actually that it does impact their relationship with money through the rest of their life. The same as anything else you learn early in life, it tends to define how you how you go on with that in life, and money is no different. So we see this as a great opportunity to to start kids and teens on the on the journey to understanding money deeply. So when things like like buy now pay later and whatever the the next one is that comes along uh, arrives, you know kids and teens have the ability to understand the basics and question those things rather than just accepting them and using them, not knowing they're a credit product, for example. So that's what we're we're trying to achieve here is to get, to get a really strong basic level of money understanding. Uh, into kids and teens so that they're, they're well set up for their financial futures. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm going to sound like a real old man now, but like um, like the idea, I mean, my kids, so I've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. They're grown up in a world uh, where everything is instantaneous. You know, actually like uh, everything they want to listen to, they want to watch, they want to do anything. Food turns up to the house 20 minutes later after we order it. Things are just intense, instantaneous for them. The idea of waiting for six months and saving to get to a thing is like a weird world like this is why buy now pay later is is you know it's a thing now but it's going to be a real thing for the the generation or the two generations that kind of come after that so i i think to your point and to the act you know the real ethos of this as you say it's like man there is such a big gap when it comes to the educational system that we've got within the uk and and within the us in terms of teaching kids the the, the real basic principles. And actually, I mean, to your point around the adults, kind of, you know, the parents getting something from this. I mean, I'm not convinced everybody really will, uh, from a parent perspective, will get all of these topics in order to be able to teach them. So it's great to see an organization like yourself really stepping into that void, because really this, this isn't just a my kids stop spending stupid amounts of money on Fortnite. It's like it's like a generational thing. It will fix a real problem. So, I mean, that that's a, you know, we're talking about a very big literacy gap that you guys are trying to plug. I mean, that that's a that's a pretty big task to get into it. It is, but that is the vision. You know, you've described it well. It's a big it's a big problem that we want to be part of solving. We we're not pretending that we can solve this alone or be the only people to solve it. So, you know, we are very keen that uh, financial literacy is rolled out further in schools, and that any other organisations who can help or even competitors that come along with similar or different products 
you know, our mission is to make every kid good with money, and any help that we can get with that is is welcome. Uh, but it is a it is a, a big ask, but it's it's something we feel we can really contribute to. Very cool, uh, Lindsay. What do you think? I mean, uh, money for kids. Like, uh, who who'd have, who'd have thought it is such a complex thing, eh? Oh, it's amazing. I have to say, my first thought is, I really wish that I had had it. You know, I think that like a lot of people, I learned maybe the hard way, you know, in my student years and immediately afterwards about money and how to manage it and how to, you know, have your own credit card, how to be responsible for your own phone bill, like all of that. I don't think banks were good at that. I mean, I got a, I got a current account and a clipboard, like, and like, I just figured it out. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it would have been really nice to have these things, as you say. Absolutely. Well, I remember first year of university, they were signing, this is in America, they were signing students up for what would be a lot of their first bank account that they had by themselves and you got a t-shirt and um i think you got a five dollar this is a long time ago so five dollars was meaningful like a five dollar voucher at pizza hut um and and that's like is that how you choose a bank um it turned out that was totally not how you choose a bank because i had to leave that bank several years later because they were terrible so you know having having tools like this available for kids and teenagers would just i mean it changed the world really yeah Gabe, I don't know if you've got kids, but uh, but this. Uh, what do you think about the from a propositional perspective? I, I, I don't have kids, but I, I think it's fantastic to see like some innovation in that space. I think that the topic that we, we touched upon like with the uh, the previous story as well is how can you educate people like to actually use uh, financial tools better, um, have an understanding of the risk, um, the benefits as well. And I think you know um, what Go Henry is doing right now is is fantastic in that regard. You know, like, as I said earlier, like there's always going to be new new services and innovation in fintech. But with that, I think um, there is always going to there's always going to be a need for like um, a level of, of education with people using those services. Right. Because with any new service out there, there's I don't want to say a risk, but like there is chances that people don't know how to use these services or use them in the wrong way. Um, so I think having innovation either through gamification or a better way of like sharing content or consuming content is is uh, a fantastic stuff so yeah very uh, impressed by this feature very good well richard i will report back i will be experimenting on josh and ivy next week and uh, i'll let you know how they get on fantastic please do all right well let, let's move on the next story that we had was over on cnbc this is Tala raises 145 million dollars to expand globally into crypto so Tala, an emerging markets digital lender that offers loans between ten dollars and five hundred dollars to consumers and small business owners has raised 145 million in series e funding the santa monaco based company says it, it, it can approve a loan within minutes and disperse the money via mobile payment platforms the fintech for the underbanked intends to use the expanded borrowing to allow them to move into savings money management options across kenya the philippines mexico india united states including some crypto offerings in there as well uh, tala has now raised more than 350 million dollars in venture funding from investors including paypal ventures gv and revolution growth uh, in May, they announced a partnership with Visa to build a platform for cryptocurrencies as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's uh, I'm just trying to do the maths quickly in my head here, but ten to five hundred dollars uh, and one hundred forty-five mil. I mean, there's no talk of the revenue attached to to where we're actually sort of seeing, but there must the high frequency and low volume of these loans. They must be 
sending out millions of these things in terms of making that process work. But I mean, Lindsay, this is a, again, on the show, we, we've had a, a number of a kind of emerging market plays with, that have been discussed here in terms of the valuations, the raises that are happening for those markets. Does it again go to show, you know, organizations that really tap into geographies with very high scale of customers that you can get to? I mean, the sky's kind of the limit, right? Yeah, I mean, you look at some of these emerging markets where you have vast numbers of unbanked or underbanked people who have these kinds of like, like, I don't know, almost like transactional day to day needs. And I mean, it does seem like the sky's the limit. I also wonder, too, if if this isn't like an intermediate stage, you know, almost like at some point, these consumers are going to need a more full service offering. And if that's where the valuation really lies, is that like, here we are today with this, I don't want to say payday loans, but you know, it it feels like in the spectrum of payday loans, but like the real value play will be after establishing in those markets and like coming into bringing those people into a real banking offering or something that's higher value in the future. And um, I mean, it's it's very far from my specialist subject area, but um, but that's where I would be really interested in those emerging markets. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting blur between doing micro lending into cryptocurrency, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and actually what that what that does from, you know, lending from a from a micro perspective for, you know, key things or, you know, short term loan basis into highly volatile cryptocurrency. You know, it's a it, it, I'm not I'm not quite following those two things kind of kind of going in hands in hand. But I mean, Gabe, what do you think on this one? It's again, you know, when I kind of list out, uh, you know, the Philippines, Mexico, India, US, there's some big old geographies, aren't they? So if this if this works and actually they they manage to uh, continue to to gain customers and distribute funds in this way, then actually the, there's a huge amount of space to grow into. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, what's interesting with uh, with Tala is and and the, the story you just described, David, is what can you actually do to to help the the underbanked and the unbanked, right? And I think this is something that where we're going to see major innovation, but also like major interest from like businesses today, right? So I think there is like six percent of Americans which are unbanked today. Um, I don't have the stats for for the EU, but um, one thing that we start seeing with with our customers is how they are looking at providing a way for these people which are unbanked or underbanked to actually buy their product and services, right? And there is like, like a lot of different ways you can do that today. Um, there is, you know, a very innovative way you can actually like provide like um, a, a beautiful checkout for people which don't have a credit card or a debit card, right? Um, and that's something that we've seen um, in, in some sectors, um, like I, I used that example earlier in mobility, where like, as you are, if you're a mobility provider and you want to launch in a city, the city will ask you, Hey, you know, some of my, you know, some of the people like living in my city don't have a credit card, but you need to provide like access to your product and services. Everyone needs to be equal. So how are you going to offer that? And, you know, there's different ways you can do that today. You can maybe allow some users to pay with their phone number, right? With EE or three or Vodafone. Um, So for me, like this is interesting topic, right? And how can you provide equal access to customer to your product and services with, you know, other means to getting paid. And well, I think, you know, like innovation in that space is quite interesting. Not so sure about the crypto and, and all that you, you mentioned earlier, David, I think there's maybe a, we need to spend a bit of time uh, on that, but we also see like, you know, our customer exploring that, um, that, that, that sector and having like crypto wallet at the point of checkout. Spe- this is more specific to like some verticals, 
But again, with that, I think should come the education piece, right? If you have those like, you know, wallets, if crypto is becoming a way to pay on your website, make sure that people know what you're doing. But yeah, quite quite interesting uh, update from from Tala and very excited to see what they're going to be doing um, in the coming month. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I've done a lot of presentations in the past around um, and looked at, you know, the underbanked uh, sort of segments. In, and as you say, I mean, there's, you know, over 2 billion people kind of globally who are, you know, deemed underbanked or unbanked. But actually, there are a hell of a lot more people who are like badly banked as well. And I, I think a lot of this sort of comes back to kind of the conversation we were having a second ago with with uh, with you, Richard, about actually the the things you do in Go Henry, which is, you know, just having an account isn't enough. Like, you know, giving uh, giving kids a current account doesn't solve the problem. You've got to educate people on how effectively to use that. So, I mean, do you see a lot of similarities in this this market, Richard? I do, yes. I mean, I think the first thing, the, the biggest thing that can help the unbanked to start with is to bank them. So it is to give them effectively a current account. I think we tend to think of the underbanked as some sort of different you know, type of person who uh, doesn't have access to these services and maybe has to have special education before they get access to them. I don't think that is the case at all. I think that sometimes it's just the demographics of the country they may be in or the situation they're in means that they, they don't have access to, to financial services. You know, there are some very successful micro-lending companies, not digital ones, but particularly in, in, in Africa, for example, and I, I know that the creditworthiness or the, or the propensity to repay loans of, of some of those um, sort of micro-loans is very, very high. So I think we need to be sort of careful not to kind of categorise the, the unbanked as a certain sort of, you know, category or, or type of person. So I think, first of all, banking them, i.e. giving them solutions that can help them in their daily lives. And then, yes, of course, wrapping it in education. But I think that applies not just to the unbanked. I think that applies to everybody, actually, educating people as to exactly you know, what these new services mean and how they work must be a good thing. So, uh, yeah, I think it, 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 I, I see it as similar to the, the teens and kids space in that teens and kids are unbanked. And obviously, we're wrapping that in education to help them. And I would see a lot of parallels in this in the space that Tal is looking at as well. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, given the scale and given the opportunities, again, I I, uh, I know we'll be uh, talking more and more about these guys as uh, as they scale. So uh, we will come back to this one a little bit more. Well, let, let's move on. The next story that we had is us, actually. It was covered in a bunch of places, but 11FS Foundry announces partnership with Google Cloud. 11FS Foundry has announced a partnership with Google Cloud, creating an end-to-end solution for businesses creating new financial services propositions. Partnership will give Google Cloud clients a clear solution for embedding finance into their products set yada 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 look there's a better person to talk about this than me uh, mr simon taylor who is one of the co-founders here at 11fs and our chief product officer over to you simon so we partnered with google hasn't everyone lately well for us this is a bit more than a press release sure 11fs foundry is already hosted on the google cloud platform but let's look at why we wanted to partner a little bit more deeply the landscape of financial services is actually really really changing in case you missed it Fintech is kind of booming right now. From fintechs reaching large valuations and incumbents and non-banks embedding finance and, frankly, in some cases, doing it brilliantly. The earthquakes have been gradual, but the ground has really shifted. Uh, we've seen JP Morgan um, moving towards core banking that's cloud native. Um, and we've seen one in five venture capital dollars now being spent on fintech. We at 11FS have worked with some of the best in the business. We've built brand new digital challenger banks in Asia Pacific, North America, Europe, the Middle East. And we found ourselves building the same thing time after time and time after time. And the thing that matters is the ability to 
personalize your proposition, to be able to stand out, to be able to do something different for your customer and solve your customer jobs to be done. And part of that is why we built 11FS Foundry, really focused from the customer down. But a big part of why we wanted to partner with Google is they are the experts in machine learning and AI. They are the ones who have worked hands-on to build pre-built components for financial services that allow us to get there faster. And frankly, pace of change is really, really crucial in financial services right now. So there's going to be a lot more coming from 11FS and Google. Uh, 11FS Foundry, you can find out more by going to 11fs.com forward slash Foundry. Thank you so much. Very cool. Uh, A billion other stories to go to. So, Lindsay, over to you for the next one. Cool. So I'm here to talk about N26, who's just raised a $900 million Series E round and a $9 billion valuation, which represents a big jump from the company's Series D valuation of $3.5 billion. The Berlin-based startup operates a digital bank with 7 million clients across 25 countries. Third Point Ventures and Coatu Management are leading the funding round. Co-founder and CEO Valentin Stafe told TechCrunch, it gives us a lot of time over the next three to four years to line up for an IPO. They also plan to hire 11, no, sorry, 1,000 people as soon as possible. I, I think about 11s quite a lot, so, you know. It's easily done. And in Very addition to done. Central Europe, <laughs> N26 now plans to expand aggressively to Eastern Europe throughout 2022. This is wild. Uh, 3.5 billion to nine. Um, I mean, you know, mega valuations are, are becoming normal, but um, but it's still a big jump. I'm like, wow. I, it just, I, I don't know, like my, my gut feeling is like, is it just it sounds like N26 has kind of put put some of their regulatory bumps behind them and they're you know ready to ready to go like uh you know like they said you know starting to line up for the IPO and it's just uh yeah we'll have to watch this space dang fintech hit and scale yo 9 billion valuation that's uh that's some serious money right there but uh you know we we've uh I think, dang, I think it was back in 2016, the first time we had Valentin on the podcast. But actually, it's amazing to see those guys keep going from strength to strength. So uh, see what they do with the money, huh? All right. uh, Next story was over on Reuters. This is HSBC to launch banking as a service. So HSBC to launch a banking as a service offering that will enable customers to create and provide business banking services through their own platforms. HSBC is working with Oracle NetSuite, a business that sells cloud-based software to mid-sized businesses to track their financials. Oracle NetSuite is using artificial intelligence and partnerships with banks to automate processes such as wiring money to pay a bill or reconciling billing records with bank statements to see how much cash is actually available for use at any given time. With this proposition, NetSuite would become the first major ERP suite with a natively integrated banking solution. HSBC intends to broaden its BAS offerings with many more solutions, including HSBC Global Wallet, the multi-currency digital wallet, and making and receiving international payments like a local. Again, I don't like there's a reoccurring theme on my stories. Uh, let's hear it from somebody way more educated than I am about talking about this stuff. Uh, let's hear from Brian McKenney, the Chief Innovation Officer at HSBC. Hi, Brian McKenney here, Chief Innovation Officer at HSBC, joining you from Las Vegas, where I've been attending the Sweet World Conference. We shared some big news this week. NetSuite announced Suite Banking, the first cloud ERP to integrate fintech into a unified suite for customers. And HSBC is the first alliance partner for Suite Banking. We are helping bring the solution to life through our launch of Banking as a Service, which enables native integration of core HSBC commercial banking products 
customer onboarding, bank accounts, cards, payments, and more into third-party platforms. This means companies can create and embed business banking services directly into their own products, all with the backing of HSBC's international network. Sweet Banking helps customers automate financial processes and gain full visibility into their cash flow. By bringing together automated accounts payable and accounts receivable processes, Sweet Banking makes it fast and easy to pay bills, send invoices, and get paid, all from within NetSuite. There's no need for customers to toggle between apps anymore. Rather, all the banking functionality is natively integrated into the core workflows within NetSuite with seamless customer journeys that achieve tremendous levels of automation, freeing up time and resources for companies that focus on growth. This unified solution is what businesses want. We at HSBC are proud to be partnering with NetSuite, and we envision this to be the first banking as a service alliance of many. Thanks. Very cool. I, I really like Brian, but I went off him immediately when he said he was in Las Vegas, didn't you? Like uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to like somebody who's having that much fun. Uh, I think, but uh, uh, and I imagine uh, Money Twenty Twenty is happening next week as well, isn't it? So there'll be a lot of people out there for for that as well. I mean, it's it's great to see big banks really start playing in this territory. And actually, when you start seeing of the the additional revenue opportunities that this brings to really big organizations like HSBC. Uh, this definitely ain't going to be the last that we'll see of this. Uh, and I can't imagine it'll be the last we'll see of this from HSBC as well. So uh, we'll have to get Brian on further and the the broader team to talk about what they're up to and uh, where this is really trying to get them to. So, uh, all right, with that, well, this is our end finally story. We always try and bring in one that's uh, a little bit different to the ones that were there in the, in the past. Um, but this is something that was covered in The Independent in the UK, which is facial recognition cameras to be installed in UK school canteens. Um, Schools in Scotland are trialling a facial recognition to allow pupils to pay for their lunches. Uh, The software is to be trialled across nine schools in North Ayrshire. Sorry for all our Scottish listeners, definitely murdered that. And hopes this to speed up lunchtime sales by scanning their faces of pupils when at the tills. Some schools already use biometric software such as fingerprint recognition to take payments, but facial recognition is being billed as a quicker and more COVID-secure way of doing it. Facial recognition has previously been used by schools to monitor attendance and security. The new systems have been criticized by privacy campaigners who say it normalizes facial recognition software where it is not needed. Um, we actually put out onto social via 11FS earlier on to see whether we thought, well, whether you thought this was a good idea or not. Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, we had uh, 74% of people come back and say this is a bad idea. 1% of people coming back saying they're not sure, which is you know, there was one guy who was super indecisive. Uh, and then 25% of people coming back and saying that this was a good idea. I mean, Lindsay, what do you think about this? Would you be happy to pay with your face? I mean... No, I, I don't know. It, it feels like, you know, there there's potential for so many things to go wrong. I think about even just trying to use, you know, my face to indirectly pay with my phone using Apple Pay. And it's, it's maybe it's possible that the schools in North Ayrshire are going to implement a, a slicker system than Apple can manage. But I'm, you know, unsure about that proposition, to be totally honest. Um, and there's just a lot that can go can go wrong with that, and you know that's before you even touch the privacy concerns or the fact that maybe children should be, you know, not so worried about about these kinds of technologies while they're in a learning environment. Um, I, you know, to be to full disclosure, I'm not a parent. I don't have personal skin in the game there, but it does seem a bit like you know that perhaps that kind of that kind of controversial technology is not 
it's not school's not the place for that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, you know, making it frictionless so almost the kids don't have to worry about it. It would There would have to be a huge amount of consent, I guess, from the, not from the kids, but from the parents in that sense, wouldn't they, in terms of do, uh, doing it. But, I mean, it's whether really, you know, back to the points we were making earlier on, Richard, does the... Does reducing the friction from kids' payments actually lead to people not really seeing it as a payment? You know, and actually, if we want to be teaching kids that the value of money, as my dad would have said, then actually being in a situation that they we actually put a bit more friction in the payment process when it comes to children to to l- let them learn. What what do you think? We hear that quite a lot. People saying that uh, digital money doesn't seem like real money to children, so we should teach them with real money and coins, etc. But the reality is that real money is disappearing. And kids are going to be living with this moving forward. So whatever we can do to kind of ease them into that environment, I think that has to be a good thing. I mean, if you look at this at face value, I guess there must be a pun in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> I can see why people would react negatively to it. And you might think it's a little bit of a, a, a you know, a waste of school's money to be doing this sort of thing. But if you sort of drill down on some of the arguments, you know, obviously COVID is one of them and an easy one to make. But there's no doubt that... Uh, you know, pupils not carrying cash or even not having a debit card um, is is a good thing. It can it reduces bullying around cash. It reduces you know lost cards, etc. Uh, also, if you know kids who are receiving free school dinners um, have a little bit of anonymity through the system, i.e., they're they're kind of not identified as the kids who are not having to pay for school dinners. You know, I, I do know that's a big issue for those children. So I'm sure there are some sort of genuine reasons why this is being done. And also, if you can just reduce the time kids are spending in the dinner queue, must be a good thing, right? If they can get through that and get out into the playground and socialise or get back into class. So I suspect there's kind of more to this than immediately, you know, meets the eye, effectively. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think you made at least three biometrics jokes in there for the uh, for the people who were, were were picking up on them which uh, which is they good. were accidental were they <laughs> oh well you just on you just on fire today then but uh, i mean more more to the point what are the kids actually queuing for these days because I, I don't know about you but my uh, my school dinners sucked like uh, so actually i mean if the kids are actually paying for something i mean lindsay you went to school in the us please tell me us canteens were a little bit better catered right uh i i couldn't i couldn't say in direct comparison but if um if this data that um that things like cabbage, overcooked veg, and lumpy mash were normal UK standards on a school dinner menu. I could say, yeah, definitely, we had nicer lunches than that. Yeah, if um, <laughs> if you suddenly tell me that um, your American schools are not like High School Musical, like you're going to shatter my entire kind of like world vision, basically. Uh, so uh, let's move on before that happens, just because it's it's far too late on uh, in the day for me to uh, to get all uh, all weird about it. But uh, on that note, we better wrap up the show, I'm afraid. Thank you so much to, for everybody uh, for listening. And thank you so much for our guests for, for coming along. Where can people learn a little bit more about everything that you're up to, Richard? Find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest thing to do. I'm not a huge LinkedIn user, but I am there and I do respond to requests. So it'd be great to connect with anybody who'd like to chat through anything. Very good. Gabe, where can people learn about everything that you're up to? And uh, I mean, probably with your expansion, apply for a job, I imagine, as well. Exactly. So we, we're actually going to you know, grow the team a lot in the coming months. Um, so check primer.io. Um, we have an amazing career page. And yeah, if you want to have a chat, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. 
But yeah, thanks a lot for uh, having me on the show again. No worries at all. Lindsay, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Well, so at 11FS, I look after Pulse, which you can learn more about at 11FS.com forward slash Pulse. And we are also hiring. So we would love to hear from you if you're interested in working on uh, the best market insights tool for digital design in the fintech space. Very, very cool. Uh, as for me, I'm a LinkedIn lurker as well. So just uh, find me over on LinkedIn and uh, always happy to uh, respond to DMs over there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you want to join the conversation, head over to social media and search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. If you want to drop us an email, do so on podcast at 11FS.com. But we very much enjoyed having you. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.